0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. All right, let's turn in the Word of God to Romans chapter 14. We're coming now to the final section of Paul's exhortations, actually. And the commentators put this final section, the brackets around it, chapter 14 all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13. Once we get on the other side of verse 13, then Paul changes his subject, talks about his mission to the Gentiles, and then he has these final greetings that occupies the last chapter. So we're coming to the end of this study in the book of Romans. The wonderful thing about going through a book, whatever book of the Bible it is, is that it guards us against riding our favorite hobby horses, especially as preachers, and preaching from our favorite texts. You have to look at the whole Word of God and we love what Paul said in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders when he said that he declared to them the whole counsel of God. Not his favorite subjects, but he treated the overall plan and work of God as declared in His Word. We need to know all that God has revealed. It's all important. And so we're coming to this section, chapter 14, that has to do... With unity in the body of Christ. Mutually accepting one another. So just keep that in mind. That's kind of the underlying theme of chapter 14 through chapter 15, as I said, verse 13. So let me read verses 1 to 12. We're going to take this whole section this morning. 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak, in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains despise pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that we might be that he might be both the Lord of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now apparently the background to this this is this is very important. Apparently there was tension in the the church at Rome, in the community of believers there, between what Paul distinguishes here in this passage between the weak and the strong. He only mentions the strong one time, and it's in chapter 15, verse 1. But it's implied, the strong are implied in chapter 14 as well, but the, the weak particularly are mentioned three times. The weak and the strong. And there was a tension between them. And there was a couple of issues that caused this tension, this division in the church. And it had to do with what we would call today non-essentials. I don't mean to trivialize them, but they're not the things that are crucial for salvation, for going to heaven. They're nothing that we would die for, but they were problems between these two groups. It had to do with the kind of food they ate, and also the observance of particular days. So Paul is going to reason with them and bring some things to their attention because he's concerned about them treating one another equally, receiving one another, welcoming one another not judging each other, and thus to forward the, the unity of the church with this teaching. Now the question is, who, who are the weak and who are the strong? Well, the evidence here in the text and throughout the Holy Epistle, let me just remind you what we've gone over in previous chapters. We've noted all along how Paul has distinguished between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church at Rome. He mentions them distinctly 12 times in this epistle. So the the church consisted of both groups. But why why is he making that distinction between them? Well, I think that that is the basis for this tension. There was a problem between them. The Jewish people, I believe, the Jewish Christians who were concerned about eating not foods in general, well, they were, but Paul mentions meat in particular. It was the meat that they didn't want. They abstained from eating meat, whereas the strong, who I believe is the Gentile section of believers in the church, they could eat anything. Yeah, the Jewish people, see, one of the things you need to know that comes out of the Old Testament law when it came to eating, not only their dietary laws of Leviticus 11, all the animals that chewed the cud had a split hoof and four-legged, you could eat that. But if they didn't chew the cud, can't eat that one. If their hoof wasn't split, can't eat those. That's not so much the issue here. The real issue was the meat was not kosher. That in the pagan culture, they did not slaughter the meat properly. And the Jews, the the animal had to have its throat slit and the blood drained out in a particular way. And they were told not to eat blood. They couldn't eat an animal that was butchered in a way that did not dispose of the blood. It wouldn't have been kosher for them. And so in the the Roman culture, a pagan culture, they didn't pay any attention to those requirements of the law of Moses. In addition to the requirements of the law, there were many regulations and details that were added to Moses that made made them even more finicky about what they ate. And Paul even mentions drink, and that would be with the wine. They, they wouldn't want wine that had been used as a, an oblation or a liblation, a, a poured-out drink to a pagan deity, for example. And probably the eating of meat that uh, was sacrificed to idols, so Paul doesn't deal particularly with that. He does in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He deals with that problem in the culture of Corinth, So here the the weaker believer felt constrained by these ritual requirements that came out of the law with these added regulations and requirements that were tacked onto the law over the centuries. The Pharisees were good at that, adding a lot of things to the law, making it more strict, more difficult to keep. And we know... I know this is the right view because look at verse 14 for a moment. Drop down to verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. That's a very important term used in this context. This is how we know this is the correct interpretation. This is the language of the law of Moses. Something that was unclean or common or would defile you if you ate it or drank it. This, is, this was the, the, the Jewish terminology. And so this is the background to why they didn't want to eat the meat. The Gentiles had no problem. They eat anything. So they were more liberated. They, they saw that these laws of Moses didn't have any application for them. And we know that Paul is on that side, isn't he? He even identifies himself with the strong in chapter 15 and verse 1. And actually his argument, his primary argument is against the weak. He's going, he's trying to help them... Also, the strong have a problem because they are despising the weak. And we're going to come to that. So both sides have a problem. They're both sinning against each other. They're creating this tension, this division in the church. And Paul wants to resolve it. He wants to help them. So let's come to verses 1 to 4. This is how we're going to think through the passage First of all, we're going to see the weak and the strong with respect to food, verses 1 to 4. And then 5 to 9, with respect to the observance of days. And then we're going to have Paul's conclusion about the judgment, and how we need to have the consideration of the future judgment day in mind, in view of these things here that he's talking about, so that we will not stand before God and have some regrets and shame about how we treated our fellow Christians in the day of judgment. So let's look at this. The weak and the strong with respect to food. Now notice what he says right off. As for the one who is weak, now I already told you who the weak is. This is is your Jewish believer. He's concerned about what he eats, what he takes in into his body. And Paul says he's weak. Now, he's not weak in his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean weak in the faith in that sense. They had just as vital of a faith in Jesus Christ as the Gentile believer. But he's talking about weak in the faith in the sense that they're not able to apply the ramifications of the Christian faith. they, They still are burdened by these restrictions and regulations of the law. So they have not fully embraced the freedom that the Gentiles had in Christ from the law. Let me just remind you, going back into Acts again, which we covered the whole book, you remember the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. It was the problem of how much of the law is going to be imposed on the Gentiles who have come to faith. There was the segment in the church at Jerusalem known as the Judaizers. They were believers, but they wanted the the Gentile believers to live like Jews. They wanted them to observe the law. And finally, after this discussion between the apostles, they all spoke Their conclusion was, remember, we're only going to lay three things on them. Abstain from sexual immorality, from idols, and from blood. From things strangled. This is the, the thing that is in view here. That is, from not eating meat that is not kosher we need to, the gentiles need to kind of observe that so they're not totally offensive to their jewish brethren to abstain from things strangled and blood so this is this is the background to what Paul is speaking here so he is addressing now he's addressing the strong here and this is his first exhortation. Notice it's to the strong, as for the one who is weak in the faith, what does he say? Welcome him. Huh? Imagine this. There was those in the church at Rome who were not welcoming their Christian brother and sister. Well, what a ter- terrible thing was happening there. And the word, the whole idea of welcoming means to. embrace them into your fellowship, to accept them, to receive them, to let them come into your inner circle. So they were keeping these people kind of at arm's length. I I don't think it means that they weren't allowed to attend the meetings. I I don't think that's what Paul means. It, It was an attitude in the church. You know, this can happen in a local church. Well, there's many, many people. There's lots of groups and cliques, and many people come to church and they feel they're on the outside. They're just not received. They're not welcomed into the fellowship. So, Paul, he's correcting this. This is, this should not be, because the church is an expression of the family of God. And so we're all brothers and sisters. We belong to the same family. He says, so let. Let the one who is weak in the faith, the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But, but he adds, notice what Paul adds to this, but, but not to quarrel over opinions. You know, what I think he means here, he says, don't, don't welcome him because you want to like, argue with him. <laughs> You want to have, have a, a, a dispute with him in the church. So that, that should not be your motive for wanting them to come because they have an opinion that you're strongly opposed to and I like to argue. So, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not for that reason. So Paul's warning even against having a, a, a wrong motive to receive them with, with a, a right motive. Verse 2. So now he's going to begin to explain now the difference who the weak and the strong are. It's just what I told you a moment ago. One person believes he may eat anything. That's your Gentile believer. And Paul considers him the strong. While the weak person eats only vegetables, let not the one who eats now, here's the two, here Paul is going to tell what each of the sin was, what each group was doing wrong to the other one. Notice verse 3. Let not the one who eats, now he's saying this to the Gentile believer, despise the one who abstains. And that whole idea of despising him means to look down on him. To hold him in contempt, to sort of disregard him that he doesn't count. What a terrible attitude. This is a sinful attitude to have toward a fellow Christian. See, they, the Gentile, he's, he's the enlightened one, he understands the implications of the gospel of Christ, that he's liberated from the law and he's enjoying this freedom. And so he's kind of looking down at this Jewish Christian who's still kind of overwhelmed with laws and requirements. And he, he's burdened. And so the Gentile feels pretty, you know, great about himself. He He's looking down on his brother. But now look at what the weak, what they're doing to the strong. They're passing judgment on them. Totally different idea in other words they're they're saying they're at fault what they're doing is wrong in other words they're condemning them <laughs> the jewish brothers and sisters are condemning their gentile brothers condemning them so they are they they're probably a little on the self righteous side they've they've taken the moral high ground here in this situation so See that there's a bad attitude on both sides that Paul has to address. Now, verse 3. Notice the argument for why they should not pass judgment or despise the other. For God has welcomed him. Same term as in verse 1. And that's actually going to be repeated again twice in chapter 15. So this is about welcoming your fellow brother or sister. Accepting them is what it means. Receiving them. Embracing them. Now this is a great argument why we should not pass judgment or despise and look down on another Christian. Look, because God has welcomed them. God has welcomed my brother or my sister no matter how strongly I may disagree with them. God has welcomed them And I need to welcome all those that God welcomes. Isn't that how it works? Who am I to not welcome somebody that God himself has welcomed and received? So a very strong argument that Paul puts forth here. God has welcomed not just the weak and not just the strong. He has welcomed them both. And so they're to welcome one another. Now, verse 4, who are you? Now, that, that question, who are you? Have we read that before in this epistle? Yes, we have. Back in chapter 2, when Paul addresses the self-righteous Jewish people, he, he asks that question about who are you to judge? And so that same language... So who's he talking to here? He's talking to the weak. How do we know that? Because he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Passing judgment was the sin of the weak. The strong were despising the weak. The weak were passing judgment on the strong. Verse 3. Now he says to the weak... Who are you to pass judgment? Well, this was a serious sin. To pass judgment, and notice how he frames this, on the servant of another. Well, that's a great point. Every Christian is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. They belong to Him. They are only answerable to Him So it's just completely out of place to think that we're in any position to judge another servant of Christ. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. The idea of standing or falling is the idea of either being approved or disapproved, being accepted or not accepted. In other words, each servant, each Christian who is a servant of Christ, the issue is, how does he regard what I'm doing? Does my behavior have his acceptance, his approval? He's able, Paul says, and he will uphold His servants, he'll keep them from being unapproved and being unacceptable. He will be upheld, Paul says. Especially Paul was confident that the the weak would be upheld, or rather the strong would be upheld by the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to be what he's saying here. He's confident that those who live without following the ritual requirements of the law and enjoy freedom from the law, that they will have the Lord's approval. I like that. That's out of a commentary. That this is what Paul means when he says, And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's with particular reference to the strong. So his rebuke is to the weak, reminding them that we're all servants of Christ, and it's, the issue is how he sees our behavior. What another person thinks is kind of irrelevant. Doesn't matter. <coughs> Their opinion doesn't count for anything. It's how does Christ see us. He's the one we are finally answered, answerable to. So now in verses 5 to 9, let's look at the other issue. So he's dealing with diet, now he's going to deal with days. These are the the two non-essentials, really. But there was disagreement, differences of opinion. So here, here we go again. Verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now I'll give you one guess. Who is who here? Who's the weak? Clearly, they are observing days. The weak are. The strong, every day's the same. See, this is how the Gentiles were. They the Gentiles didn't have a calendar of annual festivals, monthly moons, new moons, and the weekly Sabbath to follow. But the Jewish people did. And they were very precise about how they kept every seventh day, as you know. Now, Paul does not mention the Sabbath here, but over in the book of Colossians he does. So this is where we get our understanding from this text and from Colossians 2 as to what the Christian's attitude is to be toward the fourth commandment and the observance of one day out of seven, the keeping of the Sabbath. Now notice that Paul is neutral on this because he says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So he kind of leaves it up to each Christian. If you want to observe one day a week, he's fine with that, if you want to do that. If you hold every day the same, Paul's fine with that. It it is a matter of personal conviction, personal opinion. In other words, I say this to people that say, you know, we should not celebrate Christmas. We do not know that Jesus was born on December 25th. We're not commanded to observe or celebrate His birthday. Eh. Paul says if you want to observe December 25th as Christmas Day and a celebration of Christ's incarnation coming into this world, it's entirely up to you. Enjoy it. Observe it to the Lord. And I would add this, that if the Sabbath was still a requirement for New Testament Christians, clearly the Apostle Paul would have said something in this passage about that. And saying, you know, it, every day's the same, except remember the Sabbath. It's something to that nature, but Paul does not say that. But if you turn to Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul does say this to the church at Colossae. And I I want to take a moment to just bring it out because we need to have this as a, a, a corollary text to what we're now looking at. Paul says to the Christians there, and this was a Gentile city, but also no doubt had Jewish believers, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink huh, or with regard to a festival or a feast day. Now I know he's speaking now to the Jew- about the Jewish calendar because the Jews had three annual feast days where every male Jew was to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. Even the Lord Jesus observed these days, as we find in the Gospels. Paul adds not only festivals, but the new moon. The new moon brought in a monthly celebration introduced by the blowing of trumpets, and that, we don't know as much about that, but Paul mentions it because it's there in the law. And he adds, or Sabbaths. It's plural in the original. Now the plural in the original actually is how the Sabbath is mentioned in the Gospels and in Acts in several places. I, I looked it all up. Referring to the, the weekly Sabbath, it's in the plural. For example, it says in Matthew 12.1, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, singular, but the Greek is in the plural. Same form as Paul has it in Colossians 2. Luke 4.16, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Sabbath is plural in the Greek, but day is the, is in singular. But still is in the plural form. Kind of interesting that they put it like that. And then I could give you another text, the book of Acts. There's a couple of more. I won't read them to you. But making the same point. In other words, what I'm trying to say is. Although Paul says Sabbaths, does he mean all the Sabbaths? Because there were a few other. Not only the weekly Sabbath, but there was the seven-year day uh, 7 year Sabbath for the land of Israel. If you were to give it rest every seven years. Don't plow your fields. Just let the land rest every seventh year. And then every 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And uh, you could even say that that was a form of a Sabbath for the nation. But... I think Paul's talking about the weekly Sabbath here. And he says, don't let anybody judge you on that. And then he adds this. Here's the key. Verse 17 of Colossians 2. These are a shadow of things to come. Oh, they're all looking forward to something. The festivals, the Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, the monthly new moons. And the weekly Sabbath. They are prefiguring something. They're shadowing forth something that is going to come in the future. Who or what is that? Well, Paul tells us. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, He's the reality. These things are shadows. He's the reality. His redemptive work giving His people everlasting rest. That's depicted by a rest every seven days. If you want that argument, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 talks about entering God's rest, but it's connected to the Sabbath as well. So I want to touch on those because this is a thorny issue. You may be troubled. You know, how do I spend my Sundays? Do I need to... I can't work on Sundays? Is that what the New Testament says? the Sabbath was a unique sign between Israel and God. There's a few Old Testament texts to that effect, that this was an important sign of their relationship to Yahweh, keeping every seventh day holy to Him. Okay, so one person sees every day alike. Others want to see special days. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. Yeah, let that be his motive. He's sincere about it. He really believes that when he observes a day, he's doing it to God's honor and glory. Paul says, God bless you. Go ahead. Observe that day. The one who eats. Now he's talking about the strong who can eat anything. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. So we his pork, his bacon, in honor of the Lord, and all the other things. Paul says all things to be received now with prayer and thanksgiving. There's no restrictions on our diet. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, listen to this, Food will not commend us to God. <laughs> Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. What a text! I mean, just put plug that into this passage. Here we need to connect Paul's letters because he's often talking about the same subject, but here it's in it's in great detail in Romans fourteen. So he. Uh, he eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, the one who can't eat meat, but only eats vegetables, he abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 4, verse 7, For none of us lives to himself. Now this is a great reminder. No Christian, a true believer, follower of Christ, who understands the purpose of, of Christ's coming and what His redemption means in His life, no Christian, valid, true believer is going to live a selfish, autonomous life. It just, it can't be. None of us lives to Himself. And none of us dies to Himself. In other words, in his own interest, for his own advantage. Living for himself, dying to him, for himself, to himself. I have, I marked here the word for. Lives for himself or dies for, for himself. That's, uh, that preposition can be used in there. It's valid according to the original. If we live, if we live as believers, who are we living for? we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. I just love the way Paul puts this. Whether we live or die, here's the the two bookends of our life. Life and then life concluding with death and everything in between. All of life. Paul references it for the Christian. Everything has Jesus Christ in view. He is the cord that runs through our life from beginning to end. Everything is plugged into that cord. He's the cord that runs through our being. You could say to an unbeliever who thinks you're kind of strange, you know what makes me tick? You don't understand this, but I'll tell you what makes me tick. It's my relationship to Jesus I can't do anything in this life without referencing it to him what does he think about it am I pleasing him do I have his approval this is this is how we're to live as Christians right up to the moment we die and you know this is Paul underscores this in 2nd Corinthians 5 here's another beautiful cross-reference that you can add to this text 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Paul says whether we are at home or away. And what he's talking about in that context is whether we are at home in the body, alive in this world now, or whether we are away from the body, we've departed this life and we're with the Lord. He says, whether, whatever state we're in, he says, we want to be found pleasing to Him. <laughs> this is it. This is the goal. This is the aim. Second Corinthians 5.9 Then a few verses later, down in the same chapter, verse 15, he talks about the death of Christ. He says, we are, The love of Christ constrains us. Beautiful statement. He lived knowing the love of Jesus and what that love did for Paul. That had a constraining, a very powerful constraining influence upon him. And he goes on and he says it like this. For we, he he died for all, that all who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, there are many New Testament texts that give us the purpose of Christ's death. We say, why, why did Jesus die? Oh, that is, the answer to that is like a diamond. There's many facets to that answer. Now, the main one was to deal with our sin so that we could be rightly related to God. That is the number one purpose of the death of Jesus. But there are other purposes to his death. And Paul states them beautifully in his letters. And this is one place where he, he puts it in Second Corinthians 5.15. That he died for us, that we who live... Sh- that's It's a purpose clause. In order that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. In other words, the purpose of his death was to... Change our orientation from being narcissistic. It's all about me, living for me, and selfish and self-centered. To change that orientation to making Him the reason for living. And His death achieves that. That's the effect it has on believers. So then, Paul says, so then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Oh, how we need to remember this. Whose we are. Who purchased us? Who do we belong to? Remember, Paul said elsewhere to the church at Corinth you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your soul, which are His. We belong to the Lord. As I was thinking about this, I just remember how many times Jesus said in John 17 in His high priestly prayer to the Father, where He prays at the beginning for Himself, that He he, God will glorify him. And then he moves in the, the, the next, it's a very large section of his prayer, was for his immediate disciples. And then the last four or five verses, he says, I pray not for those, but for those who will believe on me through their testimony. So he prays for the believers who had come to faith based on the testimony of his apostles. So he's praying for the whole church at the end. But throughout that prayer of John 17, he mentions seven times. Listen to this. Seven times he talks about those whom the Father gave to him. Seven times. The Father who gave them to me. And he said, I've lost none of them except the the son of perdition. Judas is carrying. He kept them all, and that's a that's a beautiful thought for us to remember. We were given to Christ as a gift from the Father. He went to the cross to redeem us, to take possession of us, to make us His own. Therefore, He's not going to lose you. You're not going to be lost. He has you. He's with you. He will keep you to the end. And then Paul adds, now here, here's another statement from Paul as to the purpose of Christ's death. What I was just talking, verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and rose again. Oh, Paul, what, what reason did Christ die And was resurrected. Well, he tells us, in order that he might be Lord. Lord both of the living and the dead. of course, Paul tells us over in Philippians chapter 2 how that came about. He was raised, and then we follow the steps of his exaltation to the right hand of God. Being resurrected from the dead, then he ascended, then he entered God's throne room and he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high to share the throne of God over the universe and over the church. This is Jesus' exalted position now. He's Lord of all. And notice who he's Lord of, particularly, Paul says, both the living and the dead. Now, that's all people, but in this context, I think he means believers, whether they're alive or dead, over both realms. Now, we know he's Lord over the living when you read the book of Acts. Many, many times we find the Lord did this, the Lord did that. Every time it says that in the book of Acts... It's Jesus who's doing it. This is why the acts of the apostles should also be the acts of Christ and the acts of the Holy Spirit. He's clearly Lord over this world. But then in the book of Revelation, we get another insight that he's the Lord over the realm of death and Hades. And he's got the key to both. He's got the key to open. The realm of the dead and to bring people out of the grave this is how we need to remember Jesus Christ doesn't say anything about his mother here this is the Lord Jesus that has this power and lordship over overall so finally now in the last three verses I'll be quick here yeah, I'm calling this the ultimate consideration why Christians should welcome one another. So looking at the whole theme and what he's talking about, here is the ultimate argument for why we need to be conscious of how we treat one another in the body of Christ and why we want to promote unity among us even when there's differences of opinion. Verse 10, for why do you pass judgment on your brother? Again, this is this might be addressed to the weak, but I think probably he's addressing both, but he uses it passing judgment. Because no doubt, the strong were passing a form of judgment on the weak. Even though the weak are the ones who at first are identified as passing judgment on the strong, looking... Uh, Condemning them, finding fault, and so on. But here, he just, Paul asks the question, why are you treating each other like this? This is your brother. Brother doesn't eliminate sister. This is the word in the original that means siblings in a family. So you can add, why are you passing judgment on your brother or your sister? Or, why do you despise your brother? Now, there, that's the sin of the strong toward the weak. So again, he, he, he goes back to these two sins that each was committing against the other. It's wrong. Why, why are you doing this for, now here's the reason, we're all going to stand before the judgment. Let that just be in the back of your mind Whenever there's a temptation to treat somebody in a way that is not, that's completely out of character with being a Christian, with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in particular, that does not honor the Lord, that we are going to um, come before the judgment. And then Paul underscores it with an Old Testament quotation. It's uh, The main body of this is from Isaiah 45 and verse 23, but actually the beginning of it, as I live, says the Lord, that's not found in Isaiah 43. He, that is a phrase that's used in several places of the Old Testament. And Paul just takes it, he adds it to this, um, it's the Septuagint that he quotes from, and he quotes it verbatim, though he switches the knee and the tongue are in, a, in the reverse order in the, old, the original Old Testament passage. But this is how Paul took the Old Testament. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not misquoting it. He can put it together like this in order to make the statement. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Or you might have in your margin or give praise to God because the word can also be translated praise. It's beautiful. Do we want to stand before the God before the Lord and have a tongue that will praise him? Well that's how we want to go through the judgment. I want to be praising God. This is Paul's great conclusion and summary. Everyone's going to give an account. Each of us has an appointment with God. This is an appointment that can't be canceled, can't be postponed. That day is coming. Again, going back to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gives the believers at Corinth the same truth. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive... What is His due that He's done in His body, whether it's good or whether it's bad? Our works as believers will fall into one of those categories, no doubt. So in conclusion, let, let me sum it up like this. So this is what, this is what Paul is saying to us. That we, we should not judge our brother or sister concerning views or practices of things that are non-essentials. Now when I think of what's really important and so on, I think of three concentric circles. And maybe you, you can think with me like this for a moment. So you've got three circles. The, the circle in the middle, the the truth or the teaching of the Word of God that I would put in the middle are the things that are are the most important to believe in order to be saved, in order to really know who God is, to understand who Christ is, what he did, that really matters in being a Christian. That's in the center. Those are are the essentials that we can't compromise. We can't just change those, those ideas without seriously putting ourselves in jeopardy. Then the next layer, a little bigger circle, I put in there uh, doctrines that are important to our understanding, knowing more about our salvation, knowing more about God, things that are important. But if if I see things differently than somebody else, or even if I am mistaken in that view, it's not going to jeopardize my salvation. And then another layer, the outside layer, are probably those things that we could say are really not essential. They're maybe they're important to one degree or another, but so we're looking at those things. When you're talking about observing days and what kind of food you're gonna eat, that is all non essential matters. It's not important. So Paul says to not judge a person over their views or practices there but rather the main thing is to welcome each other as family members because we're all servants we're all members of Christ's body and his servants and God is the one to whom we are ultimately going to give an account to whom we're responsible so let's treat each other in a way that will honor Christ and I will have no regrets, no shame in the future when I stand before the Lord. That, to me, is the the essence here of what Paul is telling us. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.